0: And welcome to this special edition of the China in Africa podcast, a guide for journalists on how to cover the China Africa story. I'm Eric Olander, um, and I'm Koppies van
1: Staden at Wits University in Johannesburg. We've prepared this podcast specifically for journalists who will be covering the upcoming Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Leaders Summit in South Africa.
0: Now, for a lot of journalists, this will be the first time to report on Chinese engagement in Africa. It's a big, complicated, nuanced story that can easily be oversimplified. So what we're going to do for the next half hour is break down the basics and point out a lot of the editorial pitfalls that are very common when reporting on the Chinese in Africa.
1: So we'll start with the biggest issue of
0: all. What is this China-Africa story to begin with? The best way to describe this story is that it can be anything you want it to be. It's so big, it's so varied, and this is what makes it very, very difficult to cover. If you want to write about the China-Africa story as the Chinese being the biggest villains and doing awful things for Africa, you can write 50 column inches, you can do an hour-long documentary, and all of it is there and all of it's true. If Conversely, you want to write about how China is the greatest thing to happen to Africa in the past 15, 20, 30 years. That too is true. The best way to describe it, and I'm going to borrow from what Professor Deborah Brodigam, the noted China-Africa scholar, and how she described it, it's really like the blind man and the elephant. you remember that parable? The blind man, he feels the hindquarters, and he says, this animal is big and thick and strong. And then the blind man feels the trunk of the elephant and says, this animal is very thin and delicate and very nuanced. And that is really the China-Africa story in a nutshell. And it is really anything you want it to be. And that's one of the reasons why We see so much coverage that oftentimes is one extreme or another. So, for example, you'll see the Chinese coverage, which oftentimes is very heavily filtered by propaganda, and it's China is doing only the work of saints in Africa. Now, a lot of the reporting is absolutely accurate. It may lack some context, but it's accurate. Conversely, we see a lot of the international and the Western reporting that really highlights the criticisms of what China is doing in Africa. That, too, is accurate, but it doesn't paint the full picture. And
1: especially for Western journalists, they, they I would suggest they be slightly careful of... Of some assumptions that they would make Um, so there's been a lot of work in in China-Africa media studies on on exactly how western journalists are reporting the China-Africa story and uh, the best way to sum it up is is by this one liner that the British media scholar Emma Maudsley coined which is Dr. Livingston meets Fu Manchu in the Dark Continent so it's essentially a a concerned and essentially noble westerner meeting um, essentially evil or sinister Chinese in a place that has almost no identity of its own. So it essentially, it it, it casts China as a villain and it casts Africa as a backdrop. And that that is a big trap that, that Western journalists need to look out
0: for. And I think the moral of the story on this particular topic before we go on to the next one is be careful of the extremes. When you're writing about this, if you see your story really tilting one way or the other, one way more than the other, then you might be out of balance. In, you know, And again, that may be the, the, the gist of your story, but really this story has as much good, as much bad, and as much gray area as you can imagine. And none of them are right. None of them are entirely wrong. It really is the mix that is the, really defines the best reporting on China, Africa. Okay, let's go on to our second uh, kind of tip for reporters. A lot of people ask, Cobus, who are the Chinese in Africa, and that's a very complicated question yeah
1: that is a very complicated question and because frequently people also assume that the Chinese government because it's such a centralized government and because it's it's so difficult to see inside at the, to look at the inner workings that the Chinese government is essentially controlling everything and sending out companies and sending out migrants um, to Africa so you have to be careful about who you mean when you talk about the Chinese there's a few big groups in the first place you have state-owned enterprises so these are big companies that are in in complicated ways owned by the Chinese state. Um, In the second place, you have private Chinese companies. And these range from massive conglomerates like the telecom company Huawei to much smaller companies. Um, They all make commercial decisions based on profit, as do the state-owned enterprises. So it's not a situation that either of these two groups are necessarily sent or deployed by the Chinese government. In the third place, you have Individual Chinese people who come to Africa for a wide variety of reasons: um, some to do jobs, some to get married, some to, just simply to just see the the continent, some to work for NGOs, um, and so on. So, again, the even if you just talk about individual Chinese people, they break down in a whole bunch of different groups and a whole bunch of different ways of being in Africa.
0: And let's not also forget that there are generations of Chinese immigrants who established themselves on the continent. Uh, you know, decades ago, much less centuries ago, in Mauritius, in South Africa, and in Kenya, there's some very well-established Chinese immigrant populations that are there who are by, you know, effectively, you know, 100% African in many respects. So just like there is a diversity of immigrants in other countries, uh, you're seeing the Chinese population in Africa, as Cobus kind of pointed out, to be one that is uh, extraordinarily diverse, both in terms of what their assignment is, who they are, where they live, and what they represent in terms of being independent migrants, diplomats, sent over, expatriates, and all of that. So there's, uh, there's that.
1: The issue around expatriates and migrants is is a sensitive one. So so be careful of, of, of the language that you use there. We have a situation frequently in Africa where white people who move to Africa are labeled expatriates, while non-white people who move to Africa tend to be called migrants. So there's already a, a slightly, you know, kind of racially inappropriate, you know, kind of usage happening there that 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 make value judgments about the... the you know, kind of how suitable these people are you know be kind of in Africa. So, so so and and that leads into a, a third point actually, which is um, sorry to run on with this, um, which is the language we use in talking about China Africa generally.
0: That's right. So language here becomes very, very delicate, and it's complicated in part by Africa's unique history. Obviously, there is a, you know, centuries of colonialism, imperialism, mercantilism, you know, abuse, and the language was used to frame so much of what happened in Africa. And what happens now today is that people are trying to understand what the Chinese are doing in Africa. So they take pre-20th century kind of frameworks. Again, think of imperialism or neo-colonialism or colonialism. And then what they try and do is impose that on a uniquely 21st century phenomenon. In so many ways, the Chinese in Africa is, again, a uniquely 21st century phenomenon that has to do with globalization, with the low cost of shipping, with telecommunications. And these are things that could not have made it possible for the Chinese to be so heavily engaged in Africa 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so when the problems comes in assigning language to it, like neo-colonialism, like imperialism, it just doesn't fit the same way because what we try to do then is assign what the British were doing in Africa or the French were doing in Africa in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, and then impose it on the Chinese, and then they're not doing the same thing. It may seem like it, and this was very, very much muddied in uh, I think it was last year, in 2014, when the former central bank governor of Nigeria, Sanusi Lumido, he issued a column in the Financial Times and, you know, really directly tied what the Chinese are doing to uh, imperialism, and using that word, colonialism and imperialism. And I that frustrated me in many respects because it really set us back in this effort to assign new words to this by virtue of really kind of looking at what the Chinese engagement are doing. I will say that what the Chinese are doing in Africa probably more resembles, if anything, mercantilism than anything that relates to colonialism or imperialism. What's your thoughts, Kobus?
1: Yes. I mean, we're, what we're not saying is that everything China does in Africa is great, you know, because that's not true. I mean, there's a lot of problems. What we are saying, however, is that the prob- the problems are unique to the China-Africa relationship or then unique to Africa's relationship with, with 21st century um, emerging powers. Um, the problem with using the neocolonialism trope, or with with its its related kind of cliches, like for example the you know China's new scramble for Africa, which you see everywhere, is that it it, it ends up l- letting Europe off the hook too easily. It ends up if you conflate what China is doing now, which is not always great, but um, but is fundamentally different from the systematic exploitation and you know kind of strip mining basically of Africa that Europe did then you're essentially forgetting the past and if you forget the past of Africa then you can't 100% get why Africa gets upset about certain things or why people react to certain certain kind of ideas in a particular way. In order to do that you need to understand the weight and the horror and the 500 year length of European colonialism. So you need to see, you need to take that seriously, and in order to do that, you can't just conflate the two. You can't just say this is new colonialism because new colonialism was a thing and it was a very bad thing and a very specific thing. Um, so again, uh, you know, kind of, I
0: echo Eric. Is what we actually need are new words and we don't to describe have those. this yeah, and, particular and, and, relationship. Unfortunately, we don't actually have those words, and this is, presents a, a very difficult challenge for journalists covering the story because they will use neocolonialism or imperialism as a shorthand. But as you said, A, it trivializes the past. B, it doesn't tell the story as it actually is in Africa today. And I think what a lot of people will say is, well, you'll see that China will build a new rail line to the port of Mombasa. And then you say, well, there you go. Mines, railroads, ports, exporting raw materials, that smells like... Uh, you know, colonialism. The reason why that story is far more complicated is in part that the decisions of where those rail lines were to be built were not actually made by the Chinese, but were made by the Kenyans, the Tanzanians, and Ugandans. And that really gives agency to the uh, actually African uh, states and the African leaders and the African people. And so let's kind of go on to our next point. This is a nice little segue about the concept of agency. Now, this was a word I'm a journalist. I didn't know the word agency before we actually talked about it with my academic nerdy friends over here. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so let's talk first about what is agency and talk to us, Kobus, about why it's so important in the context of the China-Africa story.
1: Well, agency is generally used in academic writing to to refer to how much freedom of choice and freedom of action people have over their own lives. Uh, to which extent you can decide what you want to do, and to which extent you can then do it. In the in the China Africa. You know, um, space which where we mostly look at at international relations and, and international politics, um, we we particularly focus on how much power African governments have to get what they want and to make their own decisions, and to which extent they, their behavior is essentially controlled by outside actors. Now, a lot of research, um, a lot of long academic articles have been written about about decision making in Africa in relation to China, and. What, what a lot of researchers have found is that African governments tend to have a lot more decision-making power than they're generally, that's generally acknowledged. Frequently within Africa, and this is true for both African journalists and foreign journalists, they tend to assume that African governments are much weaker than they are, or they tend to assume that African governments just get Chinese decisions imposed on them. And when you look at the real data, that is simply not true. Um Researchers who've looked at, at case studies in Angola, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in South Africa, all over the continent, have found that in many cases, African governments make the decisions, they set the deadlines, they force, frequently force Chinese contractors to, to, to finish jobs quicker than they would have liked because they are because it needs to fit into a political calendar, uh, they need to meet some kind of election day Um And you find frequently also that African governments have the power to play off the Chinese against the West or against other donors. So be careful of just assuming that African governments are powerless or that African governments are kind of... Are worthy, but you know, they're trying to do good, but they, but they end up just being having, you know, being hamstrung by by international, stronger international players.
0: It's not necessarily so, as simple. And in many ways, what you're saying is avoid the Africa as victim narrative, and that is something that is so pervasive in reporting, both reporting from the continent, from foreign reporters who are based there, and then much more so by newsrooms overseas that really pick up on this kind of Africa. If it's not a starving baby, an AIDS case, Ebola, you know, then, you know, or child soldier, rape, um, you know, let's go through the the list of horrific types of stories that really have come to define Western and international news coverage of Africa. And what ends up happening is that it's very, very easy to see Africa only as the victim. And then in this case, as you talked about, Kobus, uh, the Chinese are the aggressor and victimizing Africans. And that's just not the actual story here at all. Now, as we've pointed out earlier in this show, uh, the Chinese have their problems. There are, you know, Tom Burgess from the Financial Times has done some amazing reporting about, you know, shady characters like a guy by the name of Sam Pa, who is about as dirty as they come. Uh, that's very much there. But interestingly, the, Af- the Chinese and Africans are both engaging a global economic system to their advantage and i think it's very very important here for your reporting that you understand that the that african governments are empowered here are actually taking action and to use a, an academic word have agency
1: yes and i think it's also it's also important to to pay attention to the relationship between african publics and African leaders because frequently you know kind of one what you what you, you we've seen several several incidents where a local African community would protest against a Chinese funded um, infrastructure project so this is this particularly happened in Tanzania um, around a gas pipeline and then the reporting frequently have frequently takes the the line of oh this this local African community is is protesting against the Chinese whereas frequently when you unpack the reasons for the the Protests—they're actually protesting out of fear that they're going to be cut out of profits or development or uh, you know kind of initiatives by the government. So the chi- this enchantment between African people and their governments frequently play out in the China-Africa space, with China being blamed for for failings of African governments. So this happens also in in, in certain cases where uh, frequently in environmental cases where in uh, in, in governance, in an African in an African um, government, ends up being being used by by uh, players within Africa to trick Chinese investors, you know, kind of, and then end the Chinese end up being being blamed for this. So again, just keep your eyes open for the complexities of African political life and how they might impact on on the China Africa relationship.
0: And very quickly before we move on to our next point, I, I just want to you know highlight one of my pet peeves, and this very much carries over from what you were just saying, that because something's happening in Tanzania, maybe in a small village, and there's a protest against a Chinese project, that does not mean in your headline is that all of Africa is now opposed to the Chinese. And one of the things that we see a lot in the reporting is the extrapolation of a very local issue or even a national issue that is then brought to the whole continent. And that's really a very, very dangerous shorthand to kind of point out that that Africa is not a country, Africa is not a one particular city and Africa is not one particular area. It's incredibly diverse. And when the headlines scream Africa, and China were cons- were condensing two incredibly large populations. Again, very very big, complex stories, and it cannot simply be defined down to what happens on a micro level that then is you know brought out to a macro.
1: Yes, and this actually brings us to to our final point, which is one of the one of the ways that you that you that people and journalists frequently try and and make the story more specific, try and get away from these generalizations like China and Africa, is to look for numbers. And that's the bad news. The numbers are really fuzzy, and th- very few people actually agree on on the very basic numbers of China-Africa relations. A great example of this is how many Chinese are now currently living in Africa. No one really knows. We've seen we've seen numbers going from five hundred thousand up to two million and and over. Um, and the reason for that is is that frequently even the Chinese government doesn't hundred percent know because they they find it very difficult to keep track of Chinese people who, who travel independently. So that's just one example of, of the numbers, the china African numbers being disappointingly fuzzy.
0: Yeah, I, I would say this is probably the most common question that I get from journalists when they kind of approach me for help on the China-Africa story. They'll say, well, how many people are there? And I say, well, how would it be possible to actually calculate this? I Think about it. A Chinese migrant comes from Fujian or Guangdong province. Makes their way all the way to South Africa. They don't check in with the Chinese embassy. They're not checking in with you know the the South African government. Many are questionably legal in their immigration status. Uh, I met when I was living in Kinshasa numbers of Chinese immigrants who had crossed the border from Rwanda and made it out. They were kind of flushed out through the, uh, the 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 civil war that was going on there, and they just were trying to get away from it. But they crossed the border, and of course nobody knows how many crossed the border or where they are. And one of Africa's, you know, highlights in its immigration is the fact that it doesn't have very strong border controls. So there's very, very difficult t- time for people to calculate exactly how many there. Now this has been complicated in part by journalists like Howard French, who on the cover of his book, I think he had up to 2 million, right? And so then people yes. see the cover of his, of Howard French's book, you know, China's Second Continent. And in Howard's defense, he uh, said that his publisher actually came up with the title. He did not. So I think it's very important to mention that. But these numbers get stuck in people's heads. And at the, same, at the end of the day, I think you should be very cautious when including any type of numbers about the the quantity of Chinese people in Africa only because nobody actually knows and anybody that tells you with any amount of certainty that they do know is lying. So I think that's one of the key points Um, kind of before we go Cobus, kind of give your best advice to a journalist who is new to the story and what they what's the best first step that they should do to prepare for covering the China Africa story.
1: I think the the best first step is to read our new site. Actually, <laughs> um, we set up a, a a site to help journalists to avoid myths and pitfalls to, to we, we, we went through a whole process of myth busting and trying to get the real numbers on particular issues and engaged with, with the top scholars in the China-Africa field to, to try and get the most nuanced and the most accurate and easy to digest when you're running, you know, quickly checking your phone while you're running into a news conference. This site has been designed to help you at that moment. You know, kind of fonts are big, things are, are bullet pointed, they're easy to consume so um, you know i think that is a very good place to start actually and then to to engage with with actual with the china uh, africa academics they are we can be very boring very nerdy but that's where the real research is being done so um, you know kind of we we curate a whole bunch of of constantly updating Twitter feeds of some of the most prominent people um, uh, in the field on the site. So you know, kind of, so they're very easy to get hold of. Um, and you can start conversations with them and check stuff with them and, and you know, kind of and get feedback from them um, because they engage with these issues
0: on a daily basis. So if you are listening to the show on our site, then you know that the address is reporting -focac that's fOCac.com. You're already there. Uh, the site's in English and Chinese, as you probably are fully aware, Uh, and what we encourage you to do is to go check it out again we designed this site For journalists who are covering China Africa, and so this is really not meant for other people, it's not meant for academics it is not an all-encompassing site, we'll be honest with you it is really a kind of taste of the you know, the appetizer uh, at the buffet. Uh, There is obviously so much more to cover, but what we wanted to do is make it accessible for journalists who sometimes you know, have very limited schedules in what they can do to prepare for a story particularly one as complicated as this so if you're not listening to this on our website, just go to Reporting FOCAC.com. Again, it's in Chinese and in English, and it has a lot of great basic materials. We'll also recommend our own website, the China Africa and I would also recommend the Vitz the University China Africa Reporting Project, who, together with Kobus and I at the China Africa Project, I've produced reporting FOCAC and are the sponsor of this podcast. So we wish you the best of luck in covering the China Africa story and the upcoming FOCAC Summit. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.